This morning we'll be reading from John. We'll be reading chapter 4, verses 3 through 30 and 39 through 42. So I'll give you a moment to turn there or scroll there on your phone, and then we'll read together. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now here is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and people, sorry, must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Moving on to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Right, okay, so we are, over the summer, we have been looking at some of the stories of the men, of some of the men and women in the gospels who really had life up ending encounters with Jesus. And today we're finishing with this account of the woman at the well. And as we look at this, okay, we are gonna, we're gonna look at four things this morning. We're gonna look at the humanity of Jesus. 
We're going to look at the first four Jesus. We're going to look at the directness and gentleness of Jesus. And finally, we're going to look at the life-changing power of Jesus. Okay, first point then, the humanity of Jesus. Now, I mean, you guys know this, but one of the markers of our current culture is this desire for authenticity. Or at least that's what we're told that you should be, we should be. The desire, the, or what you're being told is the desire to be the unencumbered you unencumbered by what anyone else is telling you you should be. Anyone tries to make you. And you've got to take that true, inner, authentic you and express that to the world. And of course, nowhere is that uh, more clearly going on at the moment than in the area of sexual identity and sexual practice. But what is strange, I think, is that that desire for authenticity sits alongside a celebrity Instagram culture, where people present a highly filtered and photoshopped image of themselves, of their life, that is anything but authentic. Which is strange, isn't it? But if you think about it, that, that, that projection of an image To make you look good to others is nothing new, is it? I mean, in ancient Rome, a conquering general might wait for months outside of Rome, having returned in victory, waiting for just the right moment to enter Rome in his triumphal procession so that he could project the image of a truly great man. So it's nothing new, this desire to project an image. Okay, but that is what makes what John writes here, I think, so all the more remarkable. Verse 6. Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Now, of all the gospel writers, John is the one who is most upfront about the fact that Jesus was and is God. I mean, he begins his gospel with that, doesn't he? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Again, the Word, the Logos, is Jesus. So, you can have your victorious generals and their great parades. You can have your Instagram celebrities with their carefully curated image. But when it comes to truly great men, John wants you to know, hey, Jesus exceeds them all because he's God. And yet, here is John saying, yeah, and Jesus was weary. Jesus is weary? What is Jesus doing being weary? He's supposed to be God. You can't suddenly have God, the one who upholds everything, suddenly getting tired and feeling a bit faint and needing a rest. Sure, okay, but Jesus was also a man, John is telling us, a real, authentic human being. Okay, that matters, and it matters for a whole load of reasons that we don't have time to go into today. I just want to give you a couple. Okay, you and I are continually tempted 
to make God in our image. I read in a book today, apparently there's a joke, I'm not sure it's that funny, it's certainly interesting, that God made us in his image, and ever since we have repaying him the comp- been repaying him the compliment, we make him in our image. Okay, but it's true, isn't it? We think that God, God must be like me. He must be like Martin. He approves of what I approve of. He disapproves of what I disapprove of. He likes the people I like, and he doesn't like the people I don't like. God's like me. But then Jesus comes and says, listen, if you really want to know what God is like, don't look inside yourself. Don't look at yourself, at your personal preferences. Jesus says, look at me. I am the image of God. And you have got to allow me to be the one who determines your view of God. Christ is the one who must be shaping how you see and conceive of God. And yet, there is a sense in which Jesus is just like us, because he's weary. And you almost certainly know what that feels like, don't you? You know, there's times when you're just tired, bone tired, you know, needing to sit down like Jesus kind of tired. So tired, his disciples have to go and get him food. And given the heat, he's not just tired, he's thirsty. And in all likelihood, not just tired and thirsty, but hot and sweaty and dirty. Hardly an Instagram photo of God, is it? Okay, listen, that is why Christianity is so unique. Okay, every other religion will either give you a great man, a great prophet, a great teacher, a great moral example that you have got to strive to be like or they will give you an out-of-reach God, probably with a stick, telling you, you've got to live like this. Christianity gives you something very different. A God who doesn't just know theoretically what it is to be human, but who knows it by lived example, by lived experience. The writer to the Hebrews says that in Jesus, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. One of the extraordinary criticisms that was leveled against Jesus by the religious leaders is that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How would you define a friend? What What is a friend that concept of a friend mean to you? Isn't a friend someone who understands you? A friend is someone who comes alongside you, who knows what you are going through. And the Bible tells you, Christ is your friend. He is the God who truly understands what it is to be you. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, who really should have won a prize for the greatest beard of his era, he wrote about this verse, that that Jesus was a man, that Jesus as a man could be weary. He said of Jesus in this verse, power and sympathy are marvelously combined in him. Here is rest for the weary. Here is good news. 
In other words, it is in Jesus, the Son of God, being weary, in needing rest, that you and I, that we can find rest. Why? Because it tells you that he was a man, he was a human, just like you, but a perfect man, the God-man, the one able to perfectly represent you as your representative, as your substitute before God. Okay, but first, you've got to know that you need him. Second point then, the thirst for Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is sat at the well and he's joined by this woman, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, if you know your Bible, like if you know the Gospel of John, this uh, story follows immediately on the heel of Jesus' encounter, or Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus in John chapter 3. And if you think about Nicodemus and this woman, okay, they could not be more different, could they? I mean, Nicodemus... In the social pecking order, where is he? He is right at the top. Where is this woman? She is right at the bottom, at the, in the food chain. She, he's at the top, she's at the bottom. Nicodemus is the kind of guy that you would be honored to have as your neighbor. This woman, hey, you wouldn't want her living near you. Nicodemus was a man. She is a woman in a patriarchal society. Nicodemus is a Jew. She is a Samaritan, a despised ethnic group. Nicodemus is a member of the ruling class. He is honored and fated by society. This woman comes to the well alone. And John tells us it was about the sixth hour. That is 12 noon. Okay, Nicodemus meets Jesus in the dead of night. This woman meets him in the heat of the day. Just think about that. What is she doing going getting water in the heat of the day? There's that old song, isn't there? Only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. What's she doing there? Because typically, the women would go and collect water at, the, at dawn, at the first thing in the morning, or in the cool of the evening. And they would go together. It was a social event. It was like going to the school gate. It's where you'd meet your friends. But this woman goes alone at midday. Okay, why? Well... Never let it be said that I agree with Sigmund Freud about anything, okay? But Freud said that cultures and societies are defined by what they forbid. And in a traditional culture like this woman's, sexual sin, multiple sexual partners, was most definitely forbidden. And she comes alone because, almost certainly, she has been shunned by her neighbours, because of her sexual relational history, she is a Samaritan among Samaritans. She is an outcast among outcasts. She is excluded and ostracized. You know, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which I would recommend all of you to read, 
Carl Truman, professor of history at Grove City College writes, the desire to be recognized, to be accepted, to belong is a deep and perennial human need. Hey, you know that's true. You know that in your own heart that that is true. This woman is none of those, is she? She's not recognized, she's not accepted, and she doesn't belong. It is midday, but she might as well be invisible as she moves through the shadows of her community. If it was just that this woman was a woman and a Samaritan, that would have been reason enough, cultural reason enough, for Jesus to ignore her. But Jesus doesn't. In fact, he does the opposite. He asks something of her. He, a Jewish man, asks a favor of a Samaritan woman. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now she knows that he has overstepped a boundary, verse nine. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? I mean, hello, I'm a woman, you're a man, I'm Samaritan, you're a Jew, you're not supposed to be talking to me, you do know who I am, don't you? And of course, Jesus knows who she is far better in far more detail than she has even begun to realize. And Jesus knows that, verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I want to ask you, how did her neighbors, how did her culture see her? How did they see her? She is a sinner to be condemned. Okay, contrast that with how our current culture would see her. How, I mean, how would our current culture see her? They would see her as a victim, a victim of male oppression and or as a woman with every right to be her authentic self, to live out her sexual desires regardless of what the oppressive culture around her says. How does Jesus see her? He sees her as she is, as someone who is thirsty, a woman who has gone from relationship to relationship to relationship, hoping that through relationships, through romance, through love or through sex, through having a man in her life, she can find that which will satisfy her. Where have all those relationships led her? To a relational desert, She's like a non-person walking alone to a well in the heat of the day. Relationship after relationship promised her, this is the one, this one is gonna quench your thirst. And years down the line, her soul is even more parched 
than before. And Jesus says, if you only knew the gift of God, if you only knew God's grace and who I am and what I can give you, you would know that I can satisfy you beyond anything any man can ever give you. She has gone from man to man looking for something that only Christ can give her. Let me ask you, where have you gone? Or maybe even, where are you going at the moment? You know, maybe she thought that having a man in her life would offer her security in a world where women are vulnerable. Okay, where do you look to for security? You know, complete the sentence, fill in the blank. I feel secure if. Maybe she thought that this next man would make her feel special. Where do you look to for that? Maybe in the clothes you wear, maybe in the nice comments you get, maybe in the stuff that you do, maybe in your position in the workplace. Maybe she thought a man by her side would make her someone. Where do you go for that? Your career, your research output, your family? You know, the problem is, is that the more you look to these other things, other than God, to give you an ultimate sense of security or significance, or the sense that you are seen, that your life matters, the drier your soul becomes, because you stop enjoying those things as things to be enjoyed for what they are, and you start using them and putting too much weight on them, a weight that they can never bear. Those of us with kids, we can think that having a perfect family will do it. You know, I'll, I'll be able to hold my head up. I'll be able to hold my head up in church. I'll be able to hold my head up in society. I'll get w whatever from that. What happens? We begin to put pressure on our kids, which will end up breaking them and us. Or you think your career will do it, but in your drive for success, you can sacrifice the things that really matter along the way. And if you fail and you don't achieve what you want to achieve, you'll end up being devastated. Either way, like this woman, you can find yourself standing alone at the office well, at the water cooler, because of the way that you have treated people along the way. Okay. Look how she answers. Verse 11. The woman said to her, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Okay, just, I want you to notice what she's doing. Because she does, she's doing what we all tend to do. She is thinking in terms of the material. Jesus is talking about her inner thirst, the thirst for meaning and love and security and acceptance. And she thinks stuff, water, liquid physical water, water in this well. We think positions, possessions, prestige, relationships. She thinks physical water, we think physical stuff will do it. And Jesus says, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And when Jesus says that, okay, he is not just making an offer to the woman. He's not like a salesman. Hey, drink my water. He is making a claim about himself. If you only knew who I am. Okay, what's he getting at? In the Old Testament, through the prophet Jeremiah, God diagnosed the problem of the people. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, God is the well. God is the fountain of living water. He is the only fountain that can ever satisfy us. But we have turned from him and we have tried to quench our thirst in all of these other wells. And Jesus comes and says, I'm the well, I'm the fountain, I'm the God of the living waters. Hey, come to me and drink. And the woman's response, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, I don't know, is she still thinking in terms of physical liquid water and physical thirst? Okay, maybe. Okay, but just look at it. Okay, why does she want what Jesus is offering? So I don't have to come here to draw water. I want to be rid of this daily reminder of my shame. Okay, for that to happen, Jesus has got to do some dealing with her heart. Third point then, the directness and gentleness of Jesus. Okay, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. What has he just done? What's he saying? He is beginning to peel back the layers of her heart, isn't he? He is letting her know that he knows her and he sees inside her. But as he does that, he is helping her see and confront herself. Let me ask you, when someone challenges you, how do you respond? Do you ever find yourself feeling just a bit defensive? Because look at her, that's her initial response, isn't it? Look at hers. I have no husband. She's not lying, is she? Okay, it's true, it's technically true, but it is only partially true. It doesn't tell the whole story. Why? Because she doesn't want to tell the whole story. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Now, in our therapeutic age, Jesus has just committed the unforgivable sin, hasn't he? Okay, because we are told that you are not allowed to make people feel uncomfortable. You've got to affirm them in the choices they make, especially in the area of sex and gender. But Jesus doesn't affirm her, and he does make her feel uncomfortable. But why does he do it? 
to bring real and genuine healing to her life. And the same is, it's the same is true for us. Imagine you cut yourself really badly. Okay, yesterday I was trimming the hedges and I, um, I managed to hedge trim my knee. Okay, perfectly, yeah, I was bracing my knee and went down and yikes. What do you do? If you cut yourself really badly, what do you do? You grab the first bit of material, you know, dirty handkerchief, tissue, whatever, and you press it on, don't you? Okay, and then, uh, mine wasn't that bad. And then you head down to the, um, maybe, maybe, imagine you've got some gaping wound. Don't, if you're squeamish, don't think too hard about it. Um, imagine you've got some gaping wound. Okay, you press something on it. You get a flannel, a towel, whatever. You press it on it. You head down to the emergency room. What's the doctor going to do? Okay, she will lift your hand off and peel off that covering. You're probably going to be sat there going, no, no, please don't do that. Please don't do it. It's going to hurt. She's got to take it off, hasn't she? She's got to peel back what's hiding the wound. She can't begin to help you until she does that. You've got to first expose the wound. And if Jesus is to bring real healing to our lives, and there are going to be times through his word, through his spirit, through the godly counsel of godly friends, when Jesus comes to you and says, it is time to deal with this wound. It is time to peel back the layers, to confront the past, and to see the wells of stagnant water that we have been running to. So that you can find the love and the security and the identity that only Christ can give you. So Jesus is direct with her, but he's also beautifully gentle with her. Because as he gets close to her heart, she moves beyond defensiveness and she tries to make a diversion. She starts talking about the right place to worship. Now, you know, why does she do that? You know, well, you know, do we worship in Jerusalem or do we worship here in Samaria? Why does she do that? Is she just trying to get Jesus off her case, you know, deflect him? You know, he's got a bit close to home. So she does the ancient equivalent of, let's, let's change the subject, let's think about something controversial. Jesus, what do you think about COVID? Okay, what, what do you think about vaccines? Okay, so is, is she just trying to change the subject? Or is this an issue that genuinely matters to her and where Jesus stands on this issue is going to determine whether she listens to him or not? Okay, we don't know. What we do know is how Jesus responds to her. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman. Now, if one of you ladies, okay, came to me, ask a question, or send me an email asking me a question, and I replied, woman. Okay, what would you think of that? Okay, Victoria says, Martin, I've just been, I've just been thinking about this, uh, this subject, and I go, woman, what would you think? That sounds sort of harsh, doesn't it? It sounds sort of, uh, you know, a best, a bit dismiss, dismissive, disrespectful. Do you know what's remarkable? Jesus repeatedly does this. He calls his mother woman. He calls a Syrophoenician woman woman. He calls a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years woman. Does Jesus have a woman problem? And the answer is no. In fact, it's the opposite. You know, Dr. Alan Loder, who is a, a Greek scholar, he's recently searched for all the times 
when the word gune, which is translated here as a woman, is used in what's called the vocative, you know, as a form of address. And interestingly, outside of the New Testament, it only occurs three times, and they're all on gravestones. And each time it is used as a term of affection. Okay, far from it being brusque or harsh, it is used to address the one whom you love. It's a mark of tenderness. And so he argues that when Jesus uses this word, we should really translate it dear woman, or even darling woman, which isn't very English, so we stick to dear woman. Okay, so here is this woman. She is probably trying to deflect Jesus down a rabbit hole. And Jesus, he's not just direct with her, he's gentle with her. Dear woman, do you know what's remarkable? She has probably, well, she has. She has gone from man to man hoping that this next one will love her. And her true husband, the one who really loves her, is sat beside her at the well. Verses 21 and 23. Woman, dear woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. How can an hour be coming and yet already be here? Okay, that makes no sense, does it? Okay, you can't say... You can't say uh, it's 11 o'clock, but it's not yet 11 o'clock. You can't say it's 11 o'clock, but 11 o'clock is still to come. How do you explain that? Well, in John's Gospel, the hour that's coming is always linked to Jesus' death and resurrection. And Jesus is saying that when that hour comes, when at the cross, the one who knew what it is to be absolutely human and yet was absolutely perfect. When he gave his life in our place for her sins and for our sins, as our perfect substitute, as our perfect high priest, that totally changes the way we worship. In him, we can worship our heavenly father in spirit and truth. But in Christ, that hour had already come because he was already in perfect relationship, in perfect spirit and truth relationship with the Father. And it is that restored relationship with your heavenly Father that he offers to every one of us. That just as this woman knows, just as he knows this woman, so he knows every one of us. And through his death and his resurrection, though he knows us, he forgives us. And so in him, we can know our past is dealt with. And you can know that he is the one who truly satisfies you. And when you do, it cannot but turn your life on its head. Last point, very briefly, the life-changing power of Jesus. The disciples come back with their food. 
What does a woman do? Did you notice what she does? Okay, she does three things. Firstly, verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Okay, just think about that. Because that is a totally unnecessary detail, isn't it? What's it doing there? It's got nothing, it doesn't add anything to the story. Why is it there? Because John was there, and it's what John remembers. It's one of these beautiful eyewitness details you get in the gospel. John was there, he comes back with, with his friends, they've been out shopping, comes back to the well, finds this woman here that Jesus is talking to, and as they arrive, she heads off, and what does John remember? She's left her water jar. She's, uh, you've, you, she's left her water jar. It's got nothing to do with the story, but he remembers it. What does that tell you? It tells you you can trust the Gospels. Okay, the Gospel stories are true. They tell you what genuinely happened. They tell you these genuine, life-changing encounters with Christ. Okay, but that water jar standing by the well, okay, forgotten by its owner, tells you something else as well. The whole point that she came to the well with that jar was to get water. And she's gone without it. Why? Because something else has gripped her heart. Something else has got her attention. Because when you begin to experience, when you discover and begin to experience that Christ is the one who can satisfy your deepest thirst, the things you used to look to for that, they begin to fall into their right places. But the second thing she does, is she goes and tells her neighbors, verses 28 and nine, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And she becomes a witness for Jesus. No evangelistic training, no gospel tract to hand out, no snazzy website, no smoke and lights. She doesn't go and get her teeth whitened and her nails polished. She just goes and tells them about Jesus. And the people come. Why do they come? They come because of the third thing she does. She is transparent. Verse 29 again. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now she's being truly authentic. She's honest about the mess of her life. You know, sometimes we tend to think that we've got to get things sorted before God can use us. You know, we've got to get our lives sorted before God can use us or before we can talk to our friends and colleagues about Christ. Church, the gospel is not good news because it helps good people get better. The gospel is good news because it saves sinners like us. People with broken sexual pasts and presents. Because it saves people like us who have made choices that are wrong. Because it saves people like us who are proud and hypocritical. And it is this combination of her willingness to tell others about Jesus combined with her honesty about the mess of her life. It's that that makes her such a powerful witness. Why? Because Jesus could love even a messed up, screwed up person like me.
Paul wrote that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And through the grace of Jesus, even our pasts and our presents that we are ashamed of, he will turn for good. And not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. But we first got to come to him and know that he is the one who will satisfy our thirst. Let's pray.